Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. I think I've met most of you, but if there's a few, I'd love the opportunity to meet you after this. Uh, for those of you who end up listening to this as a podcast later, you don't realize that we had a big uh, presentation here this morning of the 2020 Passion Conference, and so our college students were part of that this morning. Uh, but if we think about our college students, they understand what a J term is. And some of you have no idea what a J term is, and we've actually said here as a church, we're in the middle of a J term, and we never really explained what that, what that was. And so what a J term is, it's just a short, shorthand for saying this is a January term. If you're in college semesters, you've got a fall semester, a spring semester, and a January term is generally a class that's like four weeks long or three weeks long, and you put all your efforts into one class during that J term. And so what we've done here as a church is we've done a J term uh, where we're churchwide all the way from our children uh, who are in the kids uh, programming on Sunday morning uh, from any of the ages from kindergarten on up. They are in the same materials that we are in right now here in the service here this morning. For six weeks, we're doing a J term where we're together looking at the book of First Kings and seeing what it has to say for each and every one of us at each and every grade level, at each and every uh, life cycle that we're in, the Bible has something to say. And so I hope that you've had some interesting conversations with your children. Have uh, you bumped into people throughout the week uh, that are in different teaching uh, areas, whether they're in a lecture format, a sermon format, whether in a group format, to be able to just kind of dig in a little bit deeper here for you this morning. And so if you're new with us this morning, if you haven't been here, I just want to catch you up really quickly because you are coming in uh, to week three of this series. The first week uh, we open up 1 Kings and we meet uh, this man Solomon. And Solomon is the son of King David. He is the third king of the line of kings in Israel. And we hear this story about a young man who's asking God for wisdom. And God gives him wisdom after that request. He says, I've got all these people that I need to lead. God, will you give me wisdom? in doing so. And so uh, we ask ourselves that question when we left that morning to be able to walk out here and say, I'm not going to be searching for man's wisdom. Allow me to search for God's wisdom. Ask after God's heart and allow him to fill me with the wisdom. So we just ask that question again and again and again. Is it wise? This decision that I'm about to make, is it not, is it legal? Not is it allowed? Not is it permissible? But no, is it wise? And ask God for wisdom. Last week we got into the son uh, Solomon is building the temple. And we talked about how that temple worship is really an illustration of what it means to put God at the center of our worship. If you remembered nothing else from last week, we'd want you to be able to remember this statement. It's not about you. Worship is not about you. When we look at the temple and how it was laid out, we look at what Solomon was building with the wisdom that God had put on his head. He's looking at worship and understanding it's not about you. It's all about God. And when our focus gets distracted, we get pulled away and we lose that focus. And so we come this morning, hopefully with a heart that's prepared today, uh, that you are focused on what is it that God might have to say for you this morning. So this morning, if you'll open up your Bibles, we are continuing along in 1 Kings. Uh, we're going to begin at 1 Kings chapter 9. This is not our, our major text for today, but 1 Kings chapter 9 is going to give us a transition from where we've been into where we're going to go today. 1 Kings chapter 9, if you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, it's a black Bible in front of you, and you can find your way there, New International Version, uh, page 361. If you're following along in a digital version, we're in the New International Version, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. So we pick up uh, 
the story here. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and achieved all that he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Gibeon is the location of that first meeting when he prayed to God and asked him for wisdom, that he actually had an interaction with the holy God and he said, God, I don't know what to do. Will you give me wisdom as I move forward in life? And so now we find this is the second time that the Lord actually appears to him and he asks him some questions. The Lord says to him, verse 3, I've heard the prayer and the plea that you have made before me. How you have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. Remember, it's not about you. It's about God. And he is saying, you've done well by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all that I command, observe my decrees and my laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. He's acknowledging that what he's done is wise. He spent the time that David had kind of gotten the ball rolling. Now Solomon gets to have the fulfillment of that when he gets to build the temple, when he gets to consecrate it there and put all of the the energy and the effort there and be able to, to lift up God's name in front of all the people of Israel and say, we want this temple to always represent the greatness and the glory of God. And God fulfills that by filling the temple, the, the great cloud that comes into the temple to represent that he was present there with them. First Kings chapter 9 verse 6 has this stipulation, but if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands or the decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, remember it's all about God, it's not about you, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple that I have consecrated Israel will then become a byword, become an object of ridicule among all the peoples. This is the warning that is before King Solomon. The words that have been put here before him are are going to keep him in line to say, if you get off track, if you start to lose focus, remember that I'm going to take all of this away from you if you begin to worship other gods, chase after other things. If you've got your white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin this morning, Your first fill-in, it's just a way to be able to track along with where we're going this morning, is this. Compromise comes at a cost. Compromise comes at a cost. And what we're going to see in the life of Solomon is he never had any intention, never had any intention of getting this far off track. But compromise comes at a cost. As I speak this morning, or other times you've heard me speak about it, uh, my sleeve may pop up or something like that, and you may notice that I wear a bracelet on my wrist. It's, it's used to be red. It's now beginning to be in the, in the pink genre, and it's getting lighter and lighter and lighter. I've been wearing this bracelet now for 10 consecutive years. However many days that is, 365 times 10, let's do the math. There it is, yep. Some of you got there pretty quickly, good work. Over 3,000 days, right, wearing this one bracelet every single day, get up washing my, my hair in the shower. This bracelet has been on my wrist for 10 years, even more than that. It represents my son Josiah, and I've shared this with you before. My son Josiah, 10 years ago this weekend, passed away in the hospital in Charleston, South Carolina. After a worship gathering similar to what we're having this morning, 
Uh, I led worship, closed the final song, and the song said, you make everything glorious, finding out three or four minutes later that my son had passed away. I wear this bracelet because it represents something to me, and I continue to wear it as a reminder of that and just a reminder of his life, and I cannot believe that 10 years has gone by, and this thing is still holding up, ironically. I mean, I could have gotten a tattoo, but this is doing okay. If you remember 10 years back, go back 10 years in your mind, 2010, of what was popular, what was going on. There's a reason why this bracelet was something that we decided to do as a family for the sake of our son. At that time, at the, the height of awareness about it, is a Live Strong campaign, campaign, a yellow bracelet. Raise your hand if you at some point wore a yellow bracelet during the Live Strong campaign of all, okay, not nearly as many as I expected. There was a whole plan behind uh, that question, assuming that all the hands would go up in the room, all of you had a bracelet. If you didn't know, the bracelet represented Lance Armstrong. It was a cancer, uh, for cancer funding, cancer awareness. That yellow bracelet is very rarely worn anymore. Not because it's gotten to be 10 years old, but because it represents something entirely different that it was never intended to represent. If you know the story, if you know the history of the rise and fall of Lance Armstrong, he was one of the youngest cyclists ever to make it in the professional stages. He, he made it to the Tour de France, the thing that he is most uh, known for. He made it as the youngest uh, competitor ever to win a stage at the Tour de France. Uh, he won a stage, uh, I believe it was in 1993. Uh, he won a stage there, but then he had to uh, quit because he couldn't finish the race. But then in 1995, he came back. Uh, he finished the race that time again as the youngest athlete to ever finish it, and he finished 36th that year. A few months later, he found out that he had testicular cancer that then had spread throughout his body, and that uh, at age 27 now, he had cancer in his body, and he ended up having to have brain surgery and lymph node surgery to, to remove this cancerous cell that had, had gone throughout his entire body. By the end of that year, in 1996, uh, he was actually diagnosed as clean and clear and free of cancer. 1997, he begins the Armstrong, uh, what became the Livestrong Foundation uh, for Cancer Research. In 1999, he comes back to the Tour de France. He wins the Tour de France in 1999. He is actually, uh, again, doing incredible things for cancer research as this happened. He wins the Tour de France, but there's this one question mark that goes along with it because somewhere along the way, someone found a bag with a, some vials and different things like that, and they said, it looks like maybe you have been doping in order to uh, win this tour. It was dismissed. They found, uh, he found some type of uh, way to be able to push it aside and said that it was a skin, skin cream or an ointment that he needed uh, during that time frame. 2000, he wins the Tour de France the second, second consecutive year. 2001, he wins it again. 2002, he wins it again. 2003, he wins it again. 2004, five, six, he wins the Tour de France seven times in a row. It's unheard of. It's absolutely unheard of that this would happen. But when he wins it the final time, he retires from racing, and then there's these allegations that begin coming out that says in the early 2000s, the U.S. Postal Team is now being investigated again to see if there was evidence of doping during that time. 
In 2009, Armstrong comes back and says he wants to try again. He's going to try to win another Tour de France. He comes in third place. Afterwards, a uh, defense lawyer is hired because now in full swing are allegations that he was doping during those years. 2010, he races again. 2010, he races again, again, hoping to be able to claim that eighth championship. He comes in 23rd place. He retires again. 2012, the doping agency notified Armstrong that there's a new investigation, that new things have been found, and they're digging in deeper. By 2012, later, they strip Armstrong of all seven of his Tour de France championships, his titles, and ban him for life from the race. A few months later, early 2013, the International Olympic Committee also strips Armstrong of the bronze medal that he had won back in 2000. In 2013, later, the interview with Oprah Winfrey, he sits down and a lot of people have watched this interview and lets her know that he is guilty of banned performance-enhancing drugs. His legacy is destroyed. His history is damaged. Why? Because compromise comes at a cost. Compromise comes at a cost. Now you're listening to that story. Maybe you've, you, you watched it closely. I was into cycling and literally while at the hospital, my son was there 10 years ago, there were some days that I would ride 25, 35, 40 miles to the hospital in my uh, biking kit and all that type of, you know, tramp into the hospital wearing my Livestrong bracelet and my yellow jersey because I was so proud of what was going on with Lance Armstrong there at the hospital. Some of you followed it very closely. Some of you are just hearing some of these details for the first time because this is not something you're interested in, and that's, that's okay. But compromise comes at a cost. And as I share the story with you, some of you say, that seems really dumb. That, that, that seems like, man, all of this time that they're kind of chasing him and they're, they're pursuing him, it seems like, man, if you're near getting caught, that probably you would stop doping to make sure that you would never get caught and you'd be able to keep all those trophies on the shelf. It doesn't seem very smart. Every time there's some bank robbery or every time there's some manhunt, I'll always sit around the table and, and invite someone to coffee, eat lunch with them, and they'll tell you, I could do that way better than that guy. Here's how, and they give you a very detailed, awkwardly detailed list of the ways that they would rob the bank. Because we think we're so smart. But Solomon, we've read, was the wisest man ever to live. Turn over maybe a page in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship with the Lord, she came to test Solomon with the hardest questions that she could think of. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and about your wisdom is true. But I did not even believe these things until I came and I saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half of what was told me and the wisdom and the wealth have far exceeded all the reports that I have heard. She's come from a distant country. She's come to sit at his feet and learn from him. And she's saying, you are far wiser, far smarter than I ever believed. And yet we know that it's all a sham. We know that it will all collapse. Compromise comes at a cost. And here's what you need to know. 
God doesn't call it compromise. God calls it sin. God doesn't call it compromise. God calls it sin. And when we see sin for what it is, anything that comes short of the glory of God, we realize that we are in sin. Here's your next fill-in for you this morning. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will take you farther than you want to know because compromise comes at a cost. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on the earth. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon. They wanted to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came, they brought a gift. They brought articles of silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. And the list continues on and on and on. It's even described that silver becomes so common that they could, they could throw it on the streets like, like gravel. Jump up to chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, see the change, see the turn, see the pivot? He loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. That's his initial wife. He loved many women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They're from nations about which the Lord had very specifically told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless... Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So, so not a wife who would be a princess, but a, a wife by legal means. And his wives continued to lead him astray. There are two obvious problems here. First of all, the foreign women who had been given explicit and very specific instructions to stay far away from. Why? Because they worshiped other gods and because there was pagan influences there to Israel. And if he is going to be the king of Israel, those influence could certainly affect him. Secondly, the fact that he loves many women, many, 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 many women. And this is in opposition to God, rejecting God's plan from the beginning. From the beginning in Genesis, we see Adam and his wife Eve, and that's it. This was God's plan. This was God's design that they would become what? One flesh in marriage. We talk about that anytime that we have a Christian wedding to be able to talk about what does it mean for a man and wife to come together. They become one. And Solomon here is not one. He's spread out a thousand times over. How did he get here? Where is his great wisdom now? Solomon probably did what many of us do. He somehow thought that he could be the exception to the rule. He says, I'm the king. I can probably get away with this. He assumed that now that he's shown great wisdom, that he could get away with his sin, despite seeing how it affects others. Solomon learned, or he should have learned, that he was not we are not, you are not the exception to God's rule, to God's law. Sin will take you farther than you ever planned to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, and sin will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. Why? Because compromise comes at a cost. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, time has gone by. 
His wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father had done. In his case, age did not make Solomon wiser. If you've read the wisdom literature that we have in our Bibles, you know that much of the book of Proverbs is written by Solomon. You know that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. And the older he gets, the more he looks back at his life with disdain. The farther and farther he gets away from the God who created him, the God who gave him this great wisdom. He's getting farther and farther away. The author here contrasts Solomon They contrast him to to those, he says, he did not fully or wholly follow God. This phrase is used in a positive sense of other men in Scripture. We, We find this, that Joshua and Caleb, they what? They fully and wholly followed God until the end of their days. Here we see that King David, his father, fully and wholly followed God to the end of their days. But Solomon is someone who did not. Solomon is someone who got away from it. Why? Because sin will keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. Look at verse 7 of the same chapter. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Last week, we spent a significant amount of time looking at the detail at which the temple came together there in Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, we find Solomon begins building again. He begins building idols and idol worship and temple worship on another mountain, offering sacrifices to their gods. Really, this this basically seems unbelievable. How is this even possible? How, how does someone like Solomon, who's supposed to have the wisdom of God, get this far off track? If it wasn't in our scriptures, we probably wouldn't believe it. Here's the reality of God's word and why we are so affixed to God's word is because the stories that we read, the accounts that we are taking uh, into our, our lives as we look at, these are about real people in real locations dealing with real life. You wouldn't write this in if you were writing the story. This man of great heritage, wisdom, and blessing turns to become one of the most depraved searchers of other gods. This is a tragic example of the cost of compromise. This is a tragic example of the cost of compromise. Because of lust after women, Solomon finds himself in a place that he would have never imagined. He found himself burning incenses and worshiping other gods. When all that he has, he knows has been given to him by a holy God. This is the power of lust. This is the power of covetousness pulling him away little by little. Compromise by compromise. In a, spot, in a fog of spiritual confusion is where we see King Solomon until he's doing the things he never, ever, ever thought that he would be doing. You see, sin 
will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. Sin will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Compromise comes at a cost. Verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him now twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. The Lord had reason to be displeased with Solomon. It says there he, he, he had taken the time. He was so personal with Solomon. He had appeared to him twice, and still Solomon went after other gods. Sometimes what we worship and what, what we get in our minds and in our hearts, we say, God, if you could just be here in front of me, get, give me something tangible that I can grab a hold of. And Solomon had met God tangibly on two occasions, and yet he had fallen away. His sin at the, at the least was of, of ingratitude for all that God had done for him, but so, so much worse than that, a waste of the spiritual privilege he had been given by God. You see, sometimes we think that we have a great spiritual experience that that will outweigh the negative. That we live in this balance of life that says, God, look at all the good things I did for you on Tuesday. That outbalances what happened on Wednesday. And that simply is not the case. Verse 11, so the Lord says to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you. Does that sound familiar? God is consistent about the things that he is sharing with him that he's telling him. I will most certainly tear this kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. God had promised this entire kingdom to Israel, to David's line forever if they only remained obedient. He said it will be your kingdom forever. David reminded Solomon of this promise as he was on his deathbed, as he's handing the baton over him to the kingdom. He says, all you have to do is obey the commands of God. Keep his promises. And in doing so, you will be successful. They didn't last even one generation. Solomon's kingdom was an outstanding example of wealth, of military power, of prestige. Yet the true security of Israel did not lie in those things. It rested in the blessings of God and the obedience of his commands. Nevertheless, verse 12 says, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will not rip it out of your hands during your lifetime. I will tear it out at the hand of your son, Yet even still, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Even in this great judgment, this great collapse, this great failure by Solomon, we see a glimpse of the remnant of what God is allowing. God mingles undeserved mercy in the middle of the deserved judgment. There is no reason whatsoever for God to do this. He has done abhorrent things with the things that God has given him. And yet God says, because I have chosen you, I'm going to give an out. 
that the descendants of David, that there would still be one tribe, there would still be some people that he would keep for himself. At Christmas, we focused on this. But the beginning, the opening of the New Testament starts with what? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The remnant that was kept for the sake of worship and glorifying God himself. And as you follow through that genealogy, as it comes down from David, it makes its way all the way to this man, Jesus, the Messiah. Turn over to the New Testament, would you? To Luke. Luke. Chapter 11. Luke. Chapter 11. If you're using those black Bibles, it's page 1,088. Jesus is teaching. He is gaining in popularity. Similar to Solomon, as people from all over the world are beginning to come and see him, Jesus is looking around and the crowds are getting larger and larger. And what does he do? He looks at them and he says, you are a wicked and perverse generation because you are coming here so that your bellies will be filled. You are coming here so that your ailments will be healed, so that you no longer be sick, that you may be healed. You are coming here for yourselves. It's not about you. He's reminding them. And he points back to King Solomon. Chapter 11, verse 31. The queen of the south, or Queen Sheba he's talking about, will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Catch this. And now something greater than Solomon is here. He said, Queen Sheba traveled as far as she possibly could to come and see this Solomon. If she were here today, if she could see what was happening here today, she would be able to tell you that someone greater than Solomon is here. And people from this area, you're not even listening to him. Specifically, the Sadducees and Pharisees of the day, they are not paying any attention whatsoever. Look a couple verses ahead. Verse 33. It says this, no one would light a lamp and put it in a place where it would be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, you put it on a stand so that those who may come and see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not in darkness. Is not in darkness. As he is teaching, he is calling them a wicked and perverse generation because he knows what's going on inside of them, the darkness that is inside of them. He says, why? Why would you cover up the light? Why would you cover up the truth? He's invited over to dinner by one of those Pharisees. A few verses later, not many verses down, 11, verse 37. When Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with them. So he went in, he reclined at the table, but the Pharisees were surprised when they noticed that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal. This was part of their practice, a very uh, religious practice of how they would clean themselves before they would eat a meal. The Lord said to them, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. This morning, some of you are wondering what this goofy thing is doing over here, so let me get to it. In here, I've got three different cups as an illustration. 
of what we're really talking about here today. Three different cups that represent what's going on in this passage and what is going on with God's truth as we see it. So the first cup I have here is a solo cup. Solo cup represents some things for some of you. Some of you have a lot of experience with the solo cup. There's a song by Toby Keith that you might know the lyrics to. It says something like this, red solo cup, I'll fill you up. Let's have a party. Let's have a party. I love you, red solo cup. Let's fill you up again. Proceed to the party. Proceed to the party. Now, I really love how easy you will stack, but I don't love how easy you will crack. The characteristics of the red solo cup are this. They are known for being disposable. They are known for being able to be tossed out. They are known for not being very valuable, but it's also known for hiding what's inside of the cup. The second cup is this. The cup that looks pretty clean, it's been shined up on the outside, but on the inside is dirty. Ironically, this is my coffee cup that sits on my desk every single day. I drank coffee out of this cup this morning. (laughs) Downstairs, there's an office, the Frontier Baptist Association. Mike Flannery works there in the office, and he'll invite me down sometimes to have a cup of coffee. He's seen my cup before. He's noticed my cup before. And so if I have a cup of coffee with him, he says, you know what, why don't you leave that there? I'll take care of cleaning up the cup after the fact. Because he knows that this is my cleaning technique. The outside can look good. This cup here says joy on it, but the inside is full of darkness. The inside is full of filth. In our lives and in our society, some of you are more like this cup because you are so certain that you're gonna have things polished and ready and looking perfect for all to see. It's representative of your life. That you want everything perfect. You want the perfect family, the perfect home, the correct vehicle. All of those things are going to be perfect. And yet what's going on in the inside is filthy. What Jesus also says to the Pharisees, he says, you are whitewashed sepulchers. You're beautiful on the outside and there are dead bones inside. Anyone want to drink out of my cup? The third cup that we see is the cup of the covenant. The cup of the covenant. The cup of the covenant is an entirely different cup because when we look at that cup, we see there was Jesus had his two disciples, James and John, these two brothers. They're on the right hand and on the left hand. They're arguing with each other about who will one day be in a a seat or a position of authority and of honor one day in glory with Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, the two of you have no idea what you're talking about. You're not as wise as you think you are. You see, they've gotten off track. They've, they've started to look at man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. What's the question that he asks them? He says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink of this cup? Can you drink of this cup? This cup that he was talking about is there standing on the mountain. He says, we're gonna go to Jerusalem. We're going to go over the hill to Jerusalem, and what's going to happen there in Jerusalem is I will be beaten, I will be flogged, I will be lied about, I will be uh, uh, told all of these things that are incorrect, and I will be dragged to the cross and hung on the cross. 
Can you drink of this cup? Can you drink of this cup? Furthermore, he says, three days later, I will rise again. Can you drink of this cup? Can you pay the price for that cup? Romans 3.16, excuse me, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, the cost, the price of that cup is death. Your feeling is this, Jesus paid it all. We sang these words a few minutes ago. We sang them at the top of the lungs. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt. Do you believe it, friends? Do you believe it? Jesus paid it all. Compromise does come at a cost, and the cost has been paid. As Jesus sits around that last evening meal with his disciples, he pulls out the cup after the same disciples that he had told, can you drink this cup? He says, let me fill out this illustration for you a little bit further. He says, this body, this blood, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's the cup. What about you? What about you? Compromise comes at a cost. What if you say this this morning? No more compromise. No more. Because Jesus does say to the disciples, and he says to you and to me, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal sons. And there's two sons. One son who goes and has a really good time. And, and when he comes back, the father forgives him. See, the thing about this solo cup is, in this illustration, is to be able to demonstrate that that person doesn't know God. That person is far, far away from God. The difference is the other son, the son that I actually understand a whole lot better, the one who's got everything clean and pure looking on the outside, but the inside is full of filth. When we hear that story of the prodigal son, we get mad at the other brother. He said, why do you have such a bad attitude? Well, he thinks that he deserves something. He's entitled to something, isn't he? He's been there the whole time. And Father says, you're filthy on the inside. The point being that neither one of those cups is going to be able to pay the cost of compromise. If we say no more compromise, it's because we are grasping a hold of what God has given to us. We said, this do in remembrance of me. After that meal, Jesus would go to the garden of Gethsemane. He would cry tears, sweat blood for you and for me. And in doing so, in doing so, what does he say? He says, Father, would you take this cup from me? Because that cup means everything. But Jesus paid it all. See, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. Sin will cost you more than you are ever able to pay. But Jesus paid it all. As the band comes forward this morning, 
My intention this morning is not to encourage you to have some type of white-knuckle religiosity where you do all the right things. That is not what the Bible teaches. With the prodigal son, it's literally what the Bible teaches against. It says, no, we need, we desperately need to cling to the Father. And by doing so, this do in remembrance of me, then we can start saying, no more compromise. No more compromise because he's already paid that debt. No more compromise because I have no reason to go down this road anymore. No more compromise. What if we were a people who said no more compromise? You see, what was foreshadowed there in 1 Kings, God told Solomon that when people came by the temple, when they walked by the temple, and, and when they walked through the city and they saw the temple, and if they had gotten away from God's teachings, gotten away from the worship of a holy God, they would be the public ridicule of the people around them. Friends, our local churches, this church can be and often is the public ridicule of people around us because we refuse to say no more compromise. Sin is sin. No more compromise. I will not go down that road anymore. We will not be a people who are two-faced. We will not be a people who are judgmental. We will not be that people. We're not going to do it in our own strength. What if we were people who when someone needed to hire someone and they see your name and on the resume it says Christian or on the resume it says member of Randall Baptist Church. What if that was a good thing? What if that demonstrated something of integrity? What if that demonstrated something of authenticity? What if that demonstrated something that was loving? They will know we are Christians by our love. No more compromise. What if the next time you're in a complicated social situation, and there are numerous ones, one that's within your family, one that's within your workplace, one that's going on in society right in front of you in your school district, right in front of you on your college campus, right in front of you on your neighborhood, and you have to interact with that. What if it was a positive thing that along with your name came the, came the tag Christian, Randall Baptist Church? because you refuse to compromise, because you refuse to live a life that doesn't demonstrate a life that lives in remembrance of me. What if we lived in remembrance of the cost of that cup? Jesus paid it all. If we believe that, it changes the way that we live. As the ushers come forward this morning, I pray that you've been reminded. I pray that you've been reminded that your wisdom is going to fall short. Those degrees that are on your wall are going to come up short. That job title that's after your name is gonna come up short. The number of zeros that go after your annual income is going to come up short. The number of kids in your household is gonna come up short. 
the success of the organization that you are a part of is going to come up short. Why? Because it's not a cup that we can fulfill. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we refuse to compromise. No more compromise. Bow your heads with me this morning. Lord, if there are some here this morning in the first group, in the solo cup group, where they are far from you this morning, this is not a conversation that they're ready to have yet, perhaps. Lord, let them see the beauty, the glory of God. Let them see that we want to be a people who they know we are Christians by our love and the way we care for one another, the way that we do all things to point the glory back to you. Let that be demonstrated in all that we do. Lord, but let them not be drawn to works. Let them not be drawn to things to do. Let them be drawn to Christ. If you are here this morning, you need to know more about Christ. Would you do a simple thing for me this morning? You've got a white sheet of paper in front of you. You can mark down there. I want to know more about Jesus. Myself or any one of our team on the pastoral team or any of our elders, we would absolutely love that opportunity. If that freaks you out, if you don't want one of us calling you, we claim to be a church full of Christians. Ask somebody and let them tell you about the greatness of Jesus Christ. For others, Lord, they are, as I am, that whitewashed sepulcher who've made sure that things look good on the outside, make sure that everything's clean for all to see, but inside, inside things are much, much worse. Lord, allow us to, with authenticity, come before you and say, God, I am broken, I am damaged, I am nothing more than a pile of filthy rags before a holy God. I need you. And I too need to grab a hold of the cup, of the covenant, of the blood of Jesus Christ. In doing so, Lord, I pray that we leave this place with a commitment to say no more. No more. Because if Solomon can fall on his face, how much more easy is it for me to do so? Lord, we trust that you're working in hearts and working in lives. Lord, we pray that your word has been spoken clearly, articulated well today, Lord, in a way that would take action. No more compromise. No more. In Jesus' name, amen.